has grasped onto the idea that from beginning to end, our worship gatherings are supposed to be about connections and relationships, about knowing one another, connecting with one another at a level that it goes beyond sitting in rows on a Sunday morning. Um, for everyone who prays for those in need, who prays for the needs that don't they don't know about, for everyone who's praying for every person who does not yet know Jesus who comes through these doors, praying that they get to know him. As a pastor, I just want to say thank you. Um, not, not because you've done me a service. That's not why I'm thanking you. But because you have taken a part of your life and committed it to the gospel. And you say, well, I didn't go to be a missionary. I didn't go to do something extraordinary. I'm, I'm not out you know, um, doing what other people are doing. Sometimes our part in the work of the gospel is small, sometimes it's big, but it's always important. So again, thank you for that. It has nothing to do with the sermon, but um, I wanted to do that. Uh, one of the things that happens when um, you're a weirdo uh, linguist, historian, exegete like me is I forget that other people exist sometimes. I, I, I get buried into my brain. Um, and so I want to let you know that you are noticed. What you are doing for the gospel is important and beautiful. And thank you so much for continuing to do that. Um, this morning, because it's the first Sunday, we won't have, um, we're not having uh, our children's ministry, God's Backyard. Uh, the kids will stay up with us uh, this morning. Um, and I want to invite you uh, this morning we're going to be looking at the book of Second Kings, and we're going to actually be beginning in the, the uh, Second Kings chapter 22, um, and uh, we're going to be talking about really the last of the kings of Judah, the last really legitimate king of Judah, and his three sons. Um, there is a, a handout in the bulletin um, that kind of goes through this. I am well aware that. Um, it, it, we were, it's funny, we were uh, at the beginning of service, I was uh, talking to Zachary about how electrons flow um, through the shell, because that's what I do. I, I tell kids physics stuff, um, and I'm, I'm not a physicist, I can't do any of the math. But anyway, um, we were talking about that, and, and uh, Dave Wellman uh, came over and he was talking about going to an engineering class and saw the formula for the energy of electrons moving through the, the valence something or other, and... Um, and talked about how he just got up and left the class because there was no way he was going to understand that. I'm aware that often when I start really nerding out about Iron Age Israel, um, it can be a lot. Um, today is going to be um, one of those days where there are so many people with similar names. Um, and I wish I was making us up, but there's a guy named Yehoiakim and a guy named Yehoiakim. All right. Um, so uh, it can be difficult to keep track of who it is. So I, I kind of I did a uh, an insert in the bulletin, and then there'll also be we'll we'll put up a chart uh, in a minute um, talking about uh, Josiah's sons, and um, just so we can keep straight who everybody is. But I want to I want to turn to Second Kings chapter 22. Um, we're going to read a couple verses and then have a word of prayer, and then we're going to just dive into. Josiah and his sons. So 2 Kings chapter 22 and verse 1. Josiah was eight years old when he began to reign. And he reigned 31 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Yedidah, the daughter of Adiah of Bozkoth. And he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord and walked in all the way of David his father. And he did not turn aside to the right or to the left. Would you join me in a word of prayer?
Uh, Father, we, we turn our attention, having lifted our voices in prayer and, and praise and worship, um, having fellowshiped and, and joined at your table and knelt before your throne in intercession for our, our friends and loved ones. Lord, now we turn to your word. We turn to um, someone who in many ways prefigures the Messiah and yet still is human, um, has feet of clay. Um, Lord, we pray that you give us clarity of thought, um, unity of spirit as we consider your word, that we might see Jesus revealed, and in seeing him we might know him better, follow him more closely, um, serve his mission and his will better. We pray this through your Holy Spirit, God our Father. Amen. Now, I'm not going to go through all the details of this, but um, Josiah, uh, his narrative occurs in first and second Kings chapters 22 through 24. Uh, first Chronicle or second Chronicles chapter 34 um, starts uh, the story and they're, they're, they're pretty much the same. Um, Josiah is, like I said, he's really the, the last king of Judah, the last legitimate king of Judah. Three of his sons will serve as kings after him. Um, but Josiah is the last great king. And Josiah is incredibly important because um, Josiah gets as close as any king will to extending the power of the kingdom of Judah, the house of David, over the entirety of the land of Israel. If you remember, around the year 1000, um, the, the Hebrew kingdom, the kingdom of the house of David, split in half. And the northern part, which was the most populated, the most economically viable, the most connected kingdom, that northern kingdom kind of descends into idolatry and chaos and civil war, and there's all kinds of things going on up there. And that northern kingdom lasts until 722 when it's taken by the Assyrians. The southern kingdom, which is ruled by the house of David, is the smaller, more agrarian um, culture. It is... Forgive me, the Arkansas of the Middle East. No offense to Brother Tom, who's visiting, who's from Arkansas. Um, but uh, Arkansas is one of those places we all know about it. Very few of us have ever been there. Um, and we know that Bill Clinton came from there. It's a great place to be from, right? Um, so, what? <laughs> um Tom knew me when I was a teenager, so he's got, he's got coverage on this. He's got stories he can use. Um, so, so Judah, though, during the reign of Hezekiah, who we talked about last week, in the late uh, 700s and early 600s, the, the, the borders of Judah start to open up. And at the same time, the Assyrian Empire, which is the big boy on the block, starts to decline. It starts to um, have weak rulers. The military starts to have some, some um, reversals. It starts to, things start to go backwards for them. And Egypt, which is to the south, um, starts to assert its power, its hegemony north, north um, along the, the Mediterranean coast. And the kingdom of Judah has kind of an opportunity, this, this brief window of time, to be able to reassert their authority over the whole region. Um, now, there's also 
I get into it, but there's also environmental things that are happening. It's, it's a period of war, a wet, warm um, climate, and so the, the agriculture uh, kind of expands, and there's a bigger population, and things are uh, economically, there's some technological innovations. But basically, Josiah is the inheritor of the perfect situation. Now, his, his grandfather, Manasseh, Hezekiah's son, um, was an evil king. Uh, most evil king that had ever lived. Um, his father, Ammon, um, was actually assassinated, and Josiah, at the age of eight years old, is made king. Now, most of us who have or had eight-year-olds know that you really generally don't want to trust an entire kingdom to them. It's generally a good idea not to trust individuals who have not yet figured out basic hygiene with the leadership of an entire kingdom. Obviously, Josiah had some help, um, but Josiah seems to have been a very, um, a very mature individual. Um, he actually becomes a father at 14 and a grandfather at 32. All right. Got a lot of questions about that, but um, uh, any, uh, 30, 35, sorry, not 32, but um, anyway, he, um, that makes it better, um, but he, um, Josiah establishes himself, and the book of Chronicles records that in his eighth year, which is when he was 16, he begins to seek after the Lord, and then in his 18th year, when he's 24, he purifies the Jerusalem temple and he institutes the Passover, and he brings um, all of the he brings down all of the high places and and sacred poles and Canaanite worship sites throughout his kingdom. He tears them all down, and he basically establishes, like I said, um, he rebuilds what is essentially the kingdom of David for the first time since about 960. BC. So from at around, I mean, he, he reigns from 640 to 609. So around the year 620 or so, this is the first time in, in over 400 years that the Hebrew kingdom has been brought entirely together under one ruler from the house of David. And so far, everything is great about Josiah. He's established um, his kingdom. It's independent. He has realized the dream um, of, of a united Israel under the, the rule of the Lord and his anointed king that's present in the book of Deuteronomy. But then, um, toward the end of his life, something happens with Josiah. And, and I... I want to kind of bump into it. Second uh, uh, Kings chapter 23 and verse uh, 28. And there's more detail in the Second Chronicles events, but Second Kings chapter 23 and verse 28. Now the rest of the acts of Josiah and all that he did, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Judah? Now that's not our book of Chronicles. It's a, a different book that both kings and chronicles are dependent upon. But in his days, Pharaoh Necho II, it doesn't say the second, but that he was Necho II, king of Egypt, went up to the king of Assyria to the river Euphrates. And King Josiah went to meet him, and Pharaoh Necho killed him at Megiddo as soon as he saw him. And his servants carried him dead in a chariot from Megiddo. 
and brought him to Jerusalem and buried him in his own tomb. And the people of the t- land took Jehoaz, his son, the son of Josiah, and anointed him and made him king in his father's place. Now, um, everything about right, everything about Josiah up to this point has been positive and good, and he's done everything that could possibly ex- be expected from a king in the house of David. Um, like I said, he's he's restored the religion, he's restored the the temple, he's done everything right. There's not a single wrong thing that he does. He doesn't take a wrong step. He neither turns to the right nor to the left. And yet, in 609, which is when this happens, 609 BC, he goes up to the valley of Megiddo. He the the text says he went to meet Pharaoh Necho. What it actually means, um, he went to fight him. Um, Necho saw him and killed him. Now in Second Chronicles we read that what uh, he actually did, Josiah actually went up to the battle, and because he wasn't supposed to be there, he disguised himself and was killed by the archers of the Pharaoh. Um, okay, still dead. Doesn't change that situation. You sit there and you go, okay, this is interesting. Now I want to I want to throw a couple things at you just just by way of of discussion of the Bible. This is one of those moments where you would really like some explanation. How how does a good king, a great king, probably like all right, David's number one, Solomon, I guess he's like two and a half. All right. Um, so, because he, he had some issues at the end, but I mean, he's got to be in the top three, right? I mean, I know you guys all have your rankings of kings of Ju- Judah, and you've been you've been trying to kind of tre- keep track of it. Um, but I mean, he's in the top three. I mean, it's basically David, Solomon, Josiah, Hezekiah. I mean, th- this is there there that's four, but uh, that's why I don't teach math. Um, the uh, the he's he's there. So why this sudden death? By the way, at 39. He's 39 years old when he dies. King at eight, height of his, I mean, height of his power, height of his authority, and he dies at 39. And the kingdom descends into chaos. His his son, Jehoaz, I just want to bring up the chart. We bring up the chart. Um, his, we, we have, and I know this is wild. I'm sure you're all very excited about this diagram. Um, basically, he has three sons. His oldest son's name is Eliakim, and Eliakim apparently um, was a hostage with the Egyptians when Josiah died. So Josiah dies. They bring his body back to Jerusalem. The people of Israel make his son, whose name is either Yohanan, Shalom, or um, Jehoahaz, or all three. Why not? Um, um, they make him king. He lasts all of three months. I mean, I have I have food in my refrigerator that's lasted longer than that. Um, he lasts three months. The Egyptians show up. They take him captive. They put Eliakim in his place. And they say, no, your name is now Jehoiakim. There's a lot of name changing going on in here. 
Um, Eli means God. Yahoo means uh, Yahweh or the Lord. So this is a name swap there. Um, and he makes him king. Eliakim is king for 11 years. He pays an enormous amount of tribute to the Egyptians. Um, and then he dies. And when he dies, the, the people rush and they make his son, uh, whose name is Coniah, Jeconiah, or Jehoiakim, Jehoiachin, keeping all this straight. He's got three names. Um, they make him king. He lasts for three months in the winter. That's not even as long as Advent. I mean, he's, and he doesn't last at all. The Babylonians show up. They take him off the throne. They make his uncle. You guys want to learn a Hebrew word? Yes, you do. All right. Um, so here's, here's Hebrew, basic relationships with Hebrew. Father in Hebrew is Av. That's easy, right? Av, all right? Um, son in Hebrew is Ben. You immediately, if you've read the Bible at all, you've encountered people with those names, right? Who's the father of Israel? father of the people of Israel, main guy, father of Isaac, Abraham, means father of many peoples, Abraham, all right, son means Ben, Jacob has a son, his name is Benjamin or Benjamin, which means the son of my right hand, all right, Ben means son, if you have a male relative that is neither father nor son, and that means neither father, grandfather, great-grandfather, or son, great no direct line, you call him, and this is going to get confusing, Dode. Not dad, dode. All right? Dode is any male who is not your father or your son in your family. All right? Your cousins, by the way, the compound thing, male cousins are called ben, Yo, ben Dode, the son of my other male relative. Doesn't that make sense? It's logical. Um, well, so Dode is uncle. So anytime you want to talk to a man that is neither your father nor your son, you just call him Dodi. Um, that is Hebrew for my male relative. All right. Um, Jehoiakim, Koniah, Yekoniah, whatever. He's uh, 18 years old. He lasts three months. He gets taken captive by the Babylonians. The Babylonians have Joash, Josiah's third son, who is 22 years old, which means he's only how many years older than his nephew. He's only five years older than his nephew, right? His nephew's 18, he's 22. Uh, tw four years. Um, again, I don't do math. Um, his name is Mataniah. They changed his name to Zedekiah. Um, Mata means follower. Zedek means righteousness. So the righteousness of God. He takes that name. He's the last king. There are three sons of Josiah. Every one of them is an absolute disaster. They're, they're just the worst. This, I mean, this is Larry, Moe, and Curly. Actually, it's not even Larry, Moe, and Curly. This is Larry, Moe, and Joe. Okay? It's Larry, Moe, and Curly, Joe. I mean, this is, I mean, Shemp was at least funny. Joe was just, no. Anyway, um, and you're like, all, everybody under the age of 35 is going, who is he talking about? Three Stooges, look them up. Um, anyway, these, these three sons of... Uh, Josiah, they're a disaster. But Josiah is the greatest king since since Solomon, right? I mean, he he's extraordinary. The empire falls apart. What's going on here? Why tell this story? The, this is the point I want to bring out. Why tell this story? Why not just say there was Josiah, he died, 
then his son and his son and his grandson and his son. And they all died and it was awful and it was over. By the way, Second Chronicles, that's pretty much how Second Chronicles tells the story of these four guys. So like there was this guy, he died. This guy, he got taken to exile. This guy, he died. This guy, he did exile. All done. All right? Just gets through it. Yeah, we get all of this stuff. I want to, I want to, I want to tell you something a little bit about what's going on with the biblical narrative here. In ancient Near East cultures, there is a belief in what today in our modern culture we call reciprocal justice. It is the idea that the gods can be placated by your goodness to balance out other people's wickedness. In other words, and I'm going to I'm going to kind of illustrate this with us, all right? So, let's just say my brother-in-law Doug and my other brother-in-law Chris are coming up to the men's breakfast. Sign up if you want to meet guys who knew me when I was young. Um, but Doug, let's say Doug and Chris and I all get together. And um uh, uh, Chris, um, and Chris is one of the sweetest guys I ever, I've ever met, so please don't take this wrong, but Chris, Chris, um, you know, he likes to, I'm going to pick something random, punch koalas in the face. That, no one should ever punch a koala. That is correct. All right, it is unacceptable behavior to punch in koalas. All right, so, so. Chris, Chris likes to do that thing, all right? And that thing, that thing in the divine scale of things, that thing is considered extremely wicked. It's an extremely wicked thing to do. All right, yes. So in our society, I can't even believe we're actually passing judgment on punching koalas. I mean, this, this should just be, this should just be default bad. This is like go straight to the seventh layer of hell kind of thing. All right. So, so they. Doug and I get together. Chris is <laughs> he's over there, and Doug and I get over and we say, "Look, the gods are going to punish us. All right, the koala god is going to be very upset. The Australia god is also going to be upset. Um, so we need to accumulate enough righteousness on our side of the family to kind of balance out his misbehavior." So Doug and I. We start, you know, we groom koalas, you know, we're petting them, making sure we're there, we're escorting, taking them to doctor's appointments. I don't know what we're doing. We're accumulating righteousness on our side of the scale. Now, in Egyptian, this is called ma'at. The, the Assyrians, Mesopotamians have different terms, but it's the same idea. It's the idea that if you can balance out the, the heart of righteousness with the heart of wickedness, over your your family group or over your nation, then the gods will not bring judgment and condemnation. That's why you have a representative, right? In ancient Egypt, your representative was the Pharaoh. And the Pharaoh's job was to atone, basically, for the sins of his people. He knew what was going on. So as the great house, they all dwelled under him. He could do great things to balance out their righteousness, So in this context, it would make sense in that ancient Near East context 
that if Josiah was this good, wonderful king, it would balance out the wickedness of his grandfather and his father and the kingdom would continue because they had brought everything into ma'at, everything into balance. And as long as we just kind of didn't sway too much the other, one way or the other, things would be okay. The reason Josiah's story is recorded the way it is, is to demonstrate that that's not how God works. God doesn't keep tab of the righteousness and goodness of you and your associates to try to find a balance. He's not looking for you to balance the scales. The God of the Bible calls us to righteousness and holiness. And I cannot affect your righteousness, and you cannot affect my righteousness. So Josiah being a good wonderful king still meant he was going to die in battle because of the choices that had been made along the way. Now the cruel irony of this is had Josiah waited just four years, there was a young prince in Babylon. His father, Nabopolizer, was a general in the um, Assyrian army. And Nabopolizer had put together an allegiance with the, the Medes. And his young son, whose name you may know, proved himself to be such an amazing strategist that in 605, this son led a Babylonian army to defeat both the Egyptians and the Assyrians and correct all the problems are here. You may have heard his name. His name was Nebuchadnezzar. He was, at the time, 14 years old. He becomes king in 605 at 18 years old. Um, and becomes a guy whose legacy literally looms over the entire Bible. Josiah went to do something that was right. To defend his kingdom against the Egyptians. So a righteous king doing a right thing, shouldn't there have been a hedge of protection around him and everything should have been good for him because he was balancing out all the wickedness of all the generations that had come before. He was making everything right. The writers of First and Second Kings want to make sure we understand there is no balancing the scales there is only righteousness before God. You say, well, I did this one bad thing, but I did three good things to make up for it. That is not how things work. Just think about it. Let's think about it in terms of a recipe. I'm making tomato sauce for you. I happen to make a very good tomato sauce. I actually make several very good tomato sauces. No, I won't make them for you right now. I decide to make my tomato sauce for you. I'm preparing it. And um, I throw into it... Um, oh, I don't know. What's the most disgusting I can, thing I can think of? Mayonnaise. Oh, that's disgusting. Well, 
That is true of mayonnaise, just in general. And Leo will back me up. Um, so I decide your, salad, your, your tomato sauce, what it really needs is a whole jar of mayonnaise. I put that in. I make sure the temperature is high enough that it goes rancid. Right? Mmm. But then I add all the right spices and I balance it all out. Therefore, the, the tomato sauce should be tasty. Because I did all the right things, right? So I balanced it out. I fixed the problem, right? It should be fine. No, you put mayonnaise in a tomato sauce. The reality of our relationship with God is this. It's not about balancing the scales, do enough right to outbalance the, the bad. It's about righteousness before God. See, Josiah was right before God. In fact, when we read Second Chronicles, we actually read that uh, a prophetess goes to him and says to him, the condemnation is coming. But because of your righteousness, you're going to die young. Gee, thanks. Right? Like... You're not going to see the consequences of the evil of your kingdom because of your righteousness, but the kingdom's still going to go through it. There is no reciprocity. There is no balance to be obtained. Let me bring this to us. The Apostle Paul in the book of Romans says, and he quotes the Old Testament, there is none righteous no, not one. He says there, there is no one by default who is good enough for God. And on top of that, he says that because of who we are and because of our nature, um, it does not matter. Uh, it does not matter all the good, moral good, ethical good that we do. Because we are not righteous, there is a thing at work in us which is called sin. And sin, we've talked about sin in the past. Sin is not a laundry list of all the things that everybody says is bad. Sin is anything in nature that God created for one purpose that we twist to another purpose. So he creates words, we twist the words to tell things that are not true. We lie, that's a sin. Um, God creates uh, the sexual relationship of a husband and wife and we twist it to ourselves and our own purposes. And that, my friends, is called fornication, adultery, all of the things that it is, and it's a sin. We take uh, church, which God created, and we bend it to our own wills and purposes. That's a sin. And I could go through and list and list and list, but the Apostle Paul then says that the wages of sin, the consequences of sin, not if I balance out the sin, I can skip out of this. He says the wages of sin is death. It does not matter how much good we do or how many good people we know or how strong we are um, at whatever it is. The wages, the consequences, the result of sin in us is death. But Paul then continues and he says, but the gift of God. He says, the gift of God. Wages of sin is death. Somebody finish the verse for me. You guys all know it. 
The wages of sin is death. Let's try that all together because that, that was kind of chaotic. Why don't we take a look at it? Romans chapter 6. That was uh, needed the gift of tongues to interpret that one. <laughs> Romans chapter 6 and verse 23. Let's read it together. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. We do not balance the scales. The forces of history continue to move. The darkness and terror of sin in this world, which is very real, cannot be swayed by us trying to balance it out. Well, if I do enough good, it will save this. And I know I'm going to get in trouble for this, but I'm going to say it anyway. There is no amount of goodness in our voting that is going to change sin in our country. You say, well, if we just get Christians in the thing, we'll reverse this whole thing. No! We don't balance out sin. We live in righteousness. Now, I'm not saying you don't, move, you don't vote for moral good. You don't push. You don't do it. i could, I got to be really careful how far I say this without losing my tax-exempt status. Um, but you, you need, we need to be, we need to raise our voices, we need to speak, we need to do this, but don't think for a second that somehow we can balance out the whole culture by voting a certain way. That is exactly what is being addressed here. A good king, a righteous king, could not balance out the sin of his struggling nation. All he could be is righteous. The wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ. The free gift of God. Our faith in God. A God who gives to us freely in grace. That is the righteousness we are called to. If we go through our lives trying to fix everything that is wrong in our world you will wind up frustrated, angry, and bitter because the power of sin is death. But you can live and serve and love your God for the time you have, like Josiah did. I cannot emphasize enough the importance of our devotion to God. Not, not our political devotion to an agenda, not our protests, not our commitments to a ministry or to a particular congregation, our devotion to God. You say, but the, the pressures of the world, the things that are broken, I, I, it's, it's, it's too much. I gotta, I gotta, I gotta, I gotta. If we do not start with the foundation of our righteous relationship to God through Jesus Christ, we cannot, we, 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 it, it can't be done. All we can do is be righteous. 
You say, don't you want, don't you want America to be a Christian nation? Don't you want the, don't you, don't you want, you know, it would be great. But that's not what we're called to. We are called to devotion to our God. And if that means we die on the battlefields of Megiddo, facing down an unrighteous Pharaoh, so be it. But we should follow him. Always, always, always. You say, will it fix the problems in my life? Probably not. It it probably won't. You say, but I really want it to. Listen, I mean, we have to deal with the situations, the world as it is. We have to face it down. But we have to be first and foremost committed to our God regardless what is going on in the world. And again, if that means that we die on a battlefield of Megiddo, so be it. 39 years old. The greatest king since Solomon died at 39 years old. You see, what a tragedy. What a sad thing. I wish he had lived for a long time. He did what his God called him to do. He lived for the time he was called to live. And he passed off the scene that the judgment of God might be poured out on his nation. Is it enough for you to live For your God. No matter what happens. No matter what's going on. Is it enough for you? Would you join me in a word of prayer? Jesus, those of us who have called you Lord, who have put our faith in you, we have We have entrusted you with our eternal destiny. We have believed in something to be true, to be eternally and infinitely true. Lord, help us to keep our focus on you, our Savior and our Lord. In a world that seems to be falling apart, that we so desperately want to try to fix and balance. Lord, help us to do what you've called us to do. To live as you've called us to live. To work, to share the gospel and touch lives. Because you called us to do it, not because we think we can be the solution. Help us to keep our our hearts and our minds focused on you. We all fight battles every day. We all struggle to find our place in this world. Lord, 